0: Okay, let's take out our Bibles, and we are going to open to John chapter 5. Let's go ahead and start reading in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe the One whom He has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me that you might have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in My Father's name, and you do not receive Me." If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words?" You know, I was watching an older episode of Gunsmoke. Well, I guess now they're all older episodes of Gunsmoke. (laughs) But I was watching an episode of it, and there was a young guy that was talking to an older guy at a stable about a job. And at one point, the younger one, he kind of tells the, the owner how it's going to be if he comes to work for him for a couple minutes, and then he says, okay, I'll give you a try. And he begins to go to work and the owner's just kind of standing there with his mouth hanging open (laughs) because usually he's the one deciding he's going to give somebody a try or not. So everything kind of seemed a little bit flipped around. Well, that's kind of what we're running into when we come to this part of the passage of John is everything is a little bit flipped around. Jesus is going to kind of put himself in court. He's going to almost convene a court. Not that they're going to go have it in a courtroom somewhere or anything like that, but the language that he uses has to do with an official court Setting in verse 31 of chapter 5, he says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. He's going to start to talk about John for a minute, but I think this is actually referencing the witness of the Father to him, because after talking about John, he says, I don't need men to bear witness to me. He said right off the bat, If I alone bear witness to myself, my testimony is not true. Now, What he's saying there is not that what he actually says will not be true, because obviously his testifying about himself is true. But what he's saying is you don't have to accept it as true. See what he's doing is he's going off a Jewish law. If you look back in Deuteronomy chapter seventeen and verse six, it says, On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And then it says uh, almost the same thing, numbers chapter 35 and verse 30. And then also back in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15, it expands it to not just the death penalty cases, but other criminal cases as well. It says, "A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established." So you see what Jesus is doing is actually kind of putting himself before these religious leaders with kind of an official courtroom setting, so to speak. So what Jesus is going to do then is he puts himself under the spotlight. And he's going to basically call four witnesses down through this passage that witness to who he is as the Son of God to prove to these people who he is. And so as he calls these witnesses, and that's exactly what we have. In fact, uh, you know, with everything in Scripture, that's what we have. And you know, the the power of eyewitness accounts within court settings and to establish things as fact is invaluable. In fact, I remember some time ago, I looked that up in more detail. I just kind of scanned it a little bit this time. And I was interesting to find out, because I was curious, um, having been on a jury myself in the past, I was on a murder trial that lasted a couple of weeks. And um, I was very surprised to find that in that jury in that trial, which we did find the guy guilty in, um, there was almost no forensic evidence, no fingerprints, no DNA matches, no nothing. But what you ended up banking on was the testimony of witnesses at different points along the events, and so I got curious if you know that was what twenty years ago or fifteen years ago or something like that, and I got curious with all the technology changes if it 's changed much or if or if my uh, Situation or experience was unique in some way. And and so I looked it up and I found that actually less than 1% of guilty verdicts come about by forensic evidence, that kind of science. But actually what is used more often is the way that we track history through written documents or for testimonies of eyewitness accounts. And, And that's actually when you think of it, we really can't know hardly anything from the past. Because of forensic science, but we can know a lot because of the recording of eyewitness testimony, and that's what we have before us in Scripture. In his first epistle, in First John chapter one, and the first three verses there, he says, "That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life." The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So notice how repeatedly John says, look, these are the things that we have seen with our eyes, touched with our hands, heard with our ears, We were eyewitnesses to these things. Peter would say the same thing in his second epistle. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to You the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven and we were with Him on the holy mountain." Well, Jesus is submitting Himself to this. He kind of submits Himself to scrutiny and puts Himself under the the magnifying glass. And He says, look, let me call My witnesses and look and see who's testifying about Me. Now, they need to be careful. You know, all this started because Jesus healed a guy on the Sabbath that we learned about last week. And He healed a guy on the Sabbath, as we mentioned then, to kind of escalate things, to to bring out exactly who He is. And so He heals a guy on the Sabbath and they came to Him and they say, hey, what are you doing? You're breaking the rules. And though we acknowledge that Jesus didn't break any of God's rules, He was breaking their rabbinic traditions, that's not what Jesus said. He didn't point that out. Actually, all He did was point to His relationship to the Father, showing that He had the authority to go beyond those rules, if need be. Well then, when He said He was the Son of God, they said, now we're really upset with you because you've made yourself equal with God. But you know what? Jesus again doubles down. He doesn't back off. He goes even harder on that same thing. And as we went through last week and saw the evidence that Jesus was the Son of God, notice one of the areas that He pointed out to was the fact that in this courtroom, He is the judge. If we look back at chapter 5, verse 22, it says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Verses 27 and 28, He says He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Even verse 30 says, I can do nothing on My own. As I hear, I judge. And My judgment is just because I seek not My own will, but the will of Him who sent Me. And so kind of the question arises, it says, uh, you know, who's on trial here? Who's on trial? Because in one sense, Jesus offers Himself. Let me call my witnesses so that you can properly judge who I am. They do have to make a judgment. They do have to make a decision. Is he the Son of God or is he not? Is he the Christ or is he not? They do need to make that judgment. But at the same time, ultimately, he is the judge. It's not just Jesus that's on trial that day. It's the nation of Israel that's on trial that day too. It's every one of those individuals that was there was on trial that day, so they really needed to get it right. But you know what? The same thing is true today. For all of us sitting in this room, for all of us reading this passage here this morning and thinking through these things, the same two things are absolutely true. Who's on trial? Jesus once again is on trial. And He's offering up His witnesses for us to see. And you have to make a judgment. To try to avoid judgment is to make a judgment. Because you're not going for Christ. And there's no way to enter into that everlasting life, that eternal life that he just talked about earlier in the passage, without making the judgment that Christ is the Savior and putting your faith in Him. But ultimately, even though we have to make a judgment, ultimately we are on trial. Ultimately, we are the ones that will be judged. We're the ones that will stand before God and be judged according to this matter. And so who's on trial? I'm thankful. I'm thankful that Jesus submitted Himself to this and gave us all of this evidence of who He is, recognizing the importance of it as I recognize it, also He is the judge that will stand over me. So as we look at it here this morning, He calls four witnesses. The first witness that He calls is John the Baptist. He says in verse 33, "...You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved." He was a burning and a shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in His light. You know, if we look back at Psalm 132, verse 17, it talks about this lamp. It says, There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. He was that shining light that went before Jesus to prepare the way. The book of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I send my messenger... And He will prepare the way before Me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So this is Malachi. This is the end of the Old Testament. which At the end of the Old Testament, you'd have 400 years where God doesn't speak. doesn't send any prophets. And at the end of the 400 silent years, the first thing we see is the birth of John the Baptist. And he is the forerunner for the Messiah. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist is asked who he is, and, and he points back to another Old Testament passage, which is Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. says, so they asked him, what then, are you, Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah had said. In Luke chapter 1, verses 13-17, through 17, it says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to, their, to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And then when you see him in adulthood, when you see him earlier in the, in the Gospel of John, you see him doing just exactly that, bearing witness to Christ testifying. What is Jesus calling him for? A witness to testify concerning who Christ is. And when you see him in his ministry in the Jordan River there, it says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is He of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because He was before me. I myself did not know Him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that He might be revealed to Israel." John said, that's my whole purpose. My whole ministry is to point to Him. And then a few verses later, he says, And I, John, bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The Old Testament predicted that He would come and bear witness to me to prepare the way before me. At His birth, which was a miraculous birth because His parents had not been able to have children. And in this miraculous birth, His connection to Christ was tied right into the purpose of His birth, was that He would be the one that would go before the Christ and prepare the way and turn many hearts back to God. And then He fulfilled that in His adulthood right up until His death, pointing others to Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus then goes on from there. Uh, to call the next witness, and the next witness, and it kind of actually all, all the rest of it could all fit into one category if you wanted to, but it is definitely broken down through the passage, and that is, it could all fit into the Father, but we're gonna, what we're gonna look at first of all is the signs. Because Jesus points out that the Father is the one that gives him these signs to do. He says in verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. It's quite a demonstration that Jesus put on if you were to make categories for all the works that Jesus did. You see, Jesus showed that He had authority over nature itself. To be able to take a little bit of food, a small boy's lunch, and turn it to feed 5,000 people. Actually, well over 5,000 people. Uh, The fact that He could walk on water or that he could calm a storm by the command of his voice. He had power over nature. He had, he had power over sickness as he raised people from different kinds of sicknesses, even including leprosy. He had power over blindness. He had uh, power over people's ability to walk. The lame were made to walk. The blind were made to see. Deaf were made to hear. Even the dead were raised. And so he has power over life itself and power over death. Not only does he have power over those things, but he has power over the spirit world as well, because on a number of different occasions, he casts out demons. And so you really, when you stop and think about what our world involves, it it involves the the physical realm, it involves the spiritual realm, it involves life and death, and, and you know what? There isn't anything in it that Jesus didn't show that he had authority over those things. The very works that he did were the proof that he was who he said he was. He had emphasized this many times in John chapter 10, verses 24 through 28. It says, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. You know what? By the time you get to John chapter 10, <laughs> that is a ridiculous statement. At that time, he has told them plainly. Right now, in the passage we're looking at in chapter 5, he's telling them plainly. He's arguing with them about it. They keep saying, Well, you're saying you're the Son of God. Yup. And not only that, but this. You're saying you're equal with God. Yep, and also this. You know, he just keeps he just keeps highlighting it, taking it to the next level with them. And so by the time you get to chapter 10, they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? Tell us plainly. What they're looking for is language that they can kill him with. They're not really looking for the truth because he's already told them plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Are you hearing him this morning? Are you following him this morning? You see, these people would not embrace Christ with all the proof laid right at their feet. They would say, okay, now tell us plainly. Jesus said, it's not the plainness that is missing here. You're not My sheep. That's why you're not believing. That's why you're not following. He says, the works, which by this time are many. John just records a, a small sample. The works that I do in My Father's name, those bear witness to Me. It's happening all around you and you're missing it. A few verses later, in verses 37-38 of John chapter 10, He says, if I am not doing the works of My Father, then do not believe Me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe Me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in Me and I am in the Father. And in John chapter 14, and verse 11, again He would say, believe Me that I am in the Father and the Father is in Me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. You know, a lot of people were tuning into it. And you see it even with the people that came to believe in Christ, the people that didn't believe in Christ, the people that were against Christ, within all of their statements, you see the evidence of all of these works before them. In fact, in John chapter seven, verse 31, it says that many of the people believed in him, and they said, "When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done?" So some people were struggling with it, but this group was like, "When Christ comes, what else could he do other than what this guy's done? This's got to be the guy." John chapter 11. We find His enemies in the things that they say. It says, "...many of the Jews therefore had come with Mary and had seen what He did and believed in Him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a counsel and said..." Now now think about this. This is the council of the leaders. These are the people that are against Christ. They're not looking at the evidence. They're trying to find out how to get rid of the evidence. "...so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered to council and said, "'What are we to do? For this man performs many signs." If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come on and take away both our place and our nation. And so even the people who refused to believe, those obstinate religious leaders, recognized we can't deny this. All these things that he's doing right in front of our face. We can't deny that they're happening. So what is going to be our plan going forward? In fact, they go on to say, if he continues, everybody will believe in him. Why wouldn't they? And that's the whole point. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't they? And even to us today, we have what we're reading is eyewitness testimony. John was there. And as Jesus submits Himself before these people and says, let me call the witnesses out. Look at John the Baptist. You guys were excited for him for a little bit. Remember what he said about me? Then He calls the signs. Look at the things that I have done. That These proved you who I am. Then also He gives the witness of the Father. Verse 37, And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. Even though God did testify verbally about Christ two different occasions, He did it at His baptism. We see that in Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, When Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to Him. And He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased." The Mount of Transfiguration. That's the event. Remember when we looked at Second Peter chapter 1 earlier? And Peter says, look, we didn't fall for clever myths. We were there. It says, he was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from a cloud said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. We have the testimony of the Father, but it's more than just those two occasions. In fact, Jesus says, look, you, the people there, He says, you haven't heard His voice. These people were probably not at his baptism, obviously not, definitely not at the Mount of Transfiguration. But Jesus tells these people, you you haven't heard his voice. But what is he talking about? He's talking about a couple different things. He's moving from one to the next right now. The Father has testified. He did testify to him verbally. But the testimony mainly that Christ is focusing on is the testimony of the works that the Father has given the Son to do. And I say only the things that the Father tells me. And then now he's going to go move on from there to the last point, which is Scripture. He says the Word of God, which came from the Father as well. But then he also talks about Scripture. He's going to single out Moses. right? Because the religious leaders would often come and say, you know what, we know that God spoke to Moses. We don't know about you to Christ. And so he's going to single out Moses as part of that Scripture of the Word of God. Because Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And so he's going to focus on Moses a little bit. But he says in verse 38, "...and you do not have this Word abiding in you, for you do not believe the One whom He has sent." You know, he's talking to the religious leaders here. The Pharisees, this was their job to have the Word of God abiding in them. These people spent hours upon hours upon hours of the Old Testament and memorized large portions of the Old Testament and submerged themselves in the Old Testament, and completely missed the point. That's what they did. In fact, that's what he says in the next verse. He says, you search the Scriptures. Which That that phrase can be taken two ways. It can be taken as an imperative or an indicative. So, an imperative is a command. In other words, is he telling them, you go search the Scriptures? Or as an indicative. It indicates what they have been doing. You have been searching the Scriptures. You search the Scriptures in your life, in your experience. And most commentators, in fact, all of them that I've come across, Let's say the latter part is the way that this is supposed to be taken. He tells them, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. He's saying, look, you guys have devoted your whole life to studying the Old Testament. And you got it all wrong. The main message of the whole Old Testament and all the prophecy is Christ. The whole Old Testament points to Christ. In fact, that's why later in His ministry, after He's died on the cross, risen again from the dead, two of His disciples are traveling along the road to Emmaus. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus comes up along them and He joins Himself to them. And they don't recognize Him. He kind of hides Himself from them. They're all downcast because He had died. And this is what He says. It says, "...Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself." You know those things about being a fly on the wall? I think if I had to pick one spot in all of history to be a fly on the wall, I would love to be at that conversation. I would love to get that right from Christ Himself. It is clear. I mean, you look back at the Bible right at the very beginning, just after Adam and Eve sinned and God is pronouncing the curse upon sin, what does He do already? He promises this seed of the woman that's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. And that it begins to point at Christ. Even that day when when God takes and and kills an animal and takes the skins of that animal to cover their guilt and shame as they were trying to cover themselves with fig leaves to hide from their guilt. God provides that covering from the innocent lamb. Even that points to Christ. The faith of Abel would point to Christ. Noah would point to Christ. The ark would point to Christ. The whole sacrificial system would point to Christ. The priesthood would point to Christ. Everything. The Jewish holidays would all point to Christ. Especially when you think of like the Passover, all of that would point to Christ. When the children of Israel get delivered from Egypt, the bondage of Egypt, that would point to Christ. Even the history of Israel points to Egypt as God later would speak of his own son, Jesus, or out of Egypt, have I called my son? It's a beautiful tapestry of the forerunning picture of who Christ is. Jesus is going to go on from here when you hit John chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and so forth and talk about how your fathers ate manna in the desert. God gave them life in the desert from the bread from heaven. I'm the true bread from heaven that's come into the world to provide life. God provided water from a rock for your forefathers to live in the desert. Come to Me, and you'll have living water. All of those things, all the elements of the Old Testament pointed to Christ, even as He pointed out to His disciples that day. In verse 44 of the same chapter, It says, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Even when we get up to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, it says, then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so you have God the Father. How does God testify of His Son? He testifies one of the ways is through Scripture. In the Old Testament, pointing us to the coming of His Son. In the New Testament, revealing to us the coming of His Son. And even in the book of Revelation, showing us the return of His Son. Well, He does focus on Moses here specifically. Part of the reason for that is, remember earlier when John was questioned about who He was? They asked him, are you that prophet? And he said, no, I'm not that prophet. Well, that's because if you look back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, it says, "The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, And God promised to raise up a prophet like Moses from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, "Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die." And the Lord said to me, "They are right." in what they have spoken, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put My words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to My words, that that he shall speak in My name, I Myself will require it of him." Now notice what He says there. He says, look, there's going to become another prophet like Moses that's going to come. And whoever doesn't listen to that prophet, I'm going to hold them accountable for that. Jesus says, you know what's going to judge you when you stand before the judgment? Moses. Why? Because he wrote about me. You've been immersing yourself in his writings and you've completely missed it. You're ignoring it. I'm the prophet. When John the Baptist came, they said, Are you that prophet? He said, No. Jesus is that prophet. In John chapter 6 and verse 14, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. That's what they're referencing there. John chapter 7 and verse 40 says, When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. You know, it's astounding. Jesus goes ahead and kind of submits Himself to the trial. He calls His witnesses. He says, you judge. You make your decision. You're the judge today. He's the judge tomorrow. Make the right choice.